Welcome to Storytelling with Data, the podcast where listeners around the world learn to be better storytellers and presenters with best-selling author, speaker, and workshop guru, Cole nussbaumer Netflix. We'll cover a wide range of topics that will help you effectively show and tell your data stories. So get ready to separate yourself from the mess of 3D exploding pie charts and deliver knockout presentations. And with that, here's Cole. Hello, welcome, and thanks for tuning in. I'm Cole, and I am excited to be here today with my good friend, Steve Wexler. Steve, welcome to the Storytelling with Data podcast. Oh, thank you. And anytime I get to chat with you is a good is a good time, at least for me, hopefully for the other people here as well. Absolutely. We're going to have fun. We are all going to have fun. Steve is founder of Data Revelations, co-author of the Big Book of Dashboards, and author of the brand new, just about to be officially released book, The Big Picture. Steve, I was reflecting. I was actually trying to remember the last time that you and I were together in person. And I actually think it was when we were recording a podcast that time too, back at the Tableau conference in 2019. Does that sound right? I was going to say Paris 1957, but I think you're right. I think this is <laughs> that was uh, the time before. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think Tableau conference in 2019. That's right. So how crazy is that? So Andy had secured us this backstage room, and this was everybody that time, right? So yourself, Andy Cotgrieve, Jeff Schaefer, talking about the big book of dashboards. It's kind of hard hard to imagine that sort of scenario playing out today, right? Packed conference inside thousands of people. I'm looking forward to it. Not that I like something that large and that, I don't want to say the word oppressive, but overwhelming is a better word. But I think at least here in our neck of the woods, I don't know about other countries, we can kind of taste the end of this thing. I went to a baseball game, a stadium yesterday and watched a game in person and it was wonderful. So I hope by September, October, a lot of these Tableau user group meetings, meetups, Power BI groups, whatever it is that we're in person again. It'll be a blast. Absolutely. Yeah, it's funny, right? Because the Tableau conference and those sorts of events feel like a lifetime ago and so much has changed since then, right? We're not going to talk about most of that today. But one thing that's changed since then is that you wrote and published a book. I have it right here, The Big Picture. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. And I wrote it, but the uh, publisher is McGraw-Hill. So they're the publisher. I am just the, the writer. Just. That's not the right sentiment there. The writing takes so much time and work, and we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the book much more, too. First, just quickly for those tuning in live, per normal, you have the opportunity to help steer our conversation through your questions. You can ask those at any time in the chat window. I'll be monitoring that and incorporating into the conversation as we go along. So, Steve, I think many of the people joining today and who will be listening to this session are likely familiar with your work, but I'll bet that not everyone is. So for those who may not be, can you start just by telling us a little bit about yourself and data revelations? I don't know anyone who got into this space with the idea of early on in their career, gee, I'm going to specialize in data visualization. I started out as a musician. That's what my training was in. That's one of the reasons I gravitated towards Jeff Schaefer. He also has a master's in music, ran a software company, founded a startup, couldn't keep funding it, had to get a job for the first time in my life. I don't know this is maybe and what was your instrument of choice? My instrument, it was actually arranging an orchestration, but the, the one that I can play adequately is electric bass, but ended up getting a job for the first time at a wonderful place called the e-learning guild, an organization with thousands of members worldwide that's passionate about using technology to help people learn and perform better. And at the time, and the type of thing they were looking into was synchronous learning environments, teaching people how to do stuff on Zoom, but this is 15 years ago and things like that. So it's WebEx or whatever. And I was hired as their director of research and emerging technology. And I came with this idea of let's build, you've got this amazing community of people, then we can survey them and ask them what works, what doesn't work, what tools do you use, how much time do you spend, and 
let's make these live interactive dashboards that people can then use and filter for themselves. And they went, wow, you mean, how would that work? And I started researching a bunch of tools that could do this, discovered Tableau, and I was kind of off to the races with it. So did that for a little while, for two and a half years. I was at the Institute for Corporate Productivity for two and a half years. I was let go from the Institute of Corporate Productivity after two and a half years and founded my own consultancy 10 years ago. And this is where I'm putting all my time, effort, and passion. And, and of course, as I got better and better at this stuff, I discovered your work and got to meet you at a couple of conferences and, and learn just boatloads from you about this. It's such a fun space, right? And you get exposed to so many different organizations and challenges through that sort of work. So where did the idea for this book come from? Did it stem from some of those experiences that you've had through your consulting? A little more recent, it is in the consulting. There were two things that happened that were the catalyst for this. It wasn't, gee, the, the I think there might be a need for this book. It came about from meeting with people and discovering their frustration. So every time I give a workshop around the first book, the big book of dashboards that, that I got to write with Andy Cockreave and Jeff Schaefer, before every workshop, I worry, specifically the opening session, the first part, which is a crash course in data visualization. And I think, doesn't everybody already know this stuff? And within five minutes, it becomes really clear no, they don't. Now, these are the practitioners. These are the people who are going to be making charts and dashboards. And some of the stuff I'm showing just in the first five minutes is really eye-opening to them. So, well, if they don't need know this stuff, certainly their audience doesn't know this stuff. The other was their frustration with their stakeholders, their colleagues, their boss, their clients, who have yet to see just how potent and transformative data visualization can be. I've got the that slide of my composite client over the last 15 years, the really tough guy with the cigar, who says you can have my spreadsheet when you pry it from my cold, dead fingers. And every everyone in there goes, oh my gosh, that's like half the people in my organization. So unlike the big book of dashboards and, and pretty much Every book that I've seen on this, this is not for the practitioner. It is for the consumer of charts and dashboards, the person who needs to speak this language, to have a minimum fluency in these things, and can therefore much greater appreciate the work that you do, our fellow practitioners do, the people who are creating these insightful things. If they don't know how to read them, they're not going to use them. So I'm trying to help them learn how to read them. And so... Let me restate this back, make sure I'm understanding correctly. So the book's not for data visualization practitioners and analysts. It's for the people on... Whatever plus people that are on this thing all just left. No, it's not. <laughs> yes, it, correct. It's, it, is, it, is, it is not for the practitioner, but I will say in a minute what, what it's in for these people who are here right now. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. You were... No, not at all. Well, I'll just, I'll, I'll pose a question that I've posed to you before, which is how do you get that group of people to know that they need it or to want this book? I remember this vividly. It's a really good way of putting it. And it was one of those, Steve, I need to take you and look you squarely in the eye. Not that you can do, we can do that right now. But I remember the way you put it and you have a wonderful, there's so many turns of phrases that I use now and I try to make sure I attribute to you. She said, well, the problem, Steve, is the people who really need to read this book don't know they need to read this book. And it led to some introspection and realizing, oh my, okay, how do I amplify this? How do I get the message out? How do I do that same looking in somebody's eye and said, this will really help you. This is a weekend read. You can you know, take this book home on Saturday, start it. By the end of the weekend, you're done. And you'll have this minimum fluency in the language of graphics. How do I get them to realize that? And part of it is trying to help the practitioners evangelize themselves. If the organization doesn't properly value data visualization, they're certainly not gonna value the data visualization practitioner. It's kind of in our combined interest to get everybody fluent in this language, the language of charts and graphs. There's a wonderful made up word, graphicacy. And 
imagine how much easier if you don't have to have the, well, here's why we shouldn't be using 3D pie charts. Here's why the bar chart has to start, the value axis probably has to start at zero. Elevating um, the conversation, right? So you don't have to spend the time on those pieces. Yeah. And they, they've already kind of been walked down this path of stuff. And if not, hopefully I'm giving them polite ammunition to help them, I don't want to say win the argument, because it, there shouldn't be fighting amongst the stakeholders. The stakeholders, I, I know you and I have spoken about this a lot. The stakeholders, the audience should be your collaborators on this. Great things happen when that transpires, but things that can help you to help people who don't love and embrace this yet, appreciate it. Examples, vignettes, and so on. I want to come back to the collaboration piece for sure. But before we do that, you talk about practitioners and evangelizing. What does that look like in a practical day-to-day? Can you give examples? It's showing people where stuff that they've missed or how much harder they're they're working to find something. The We are all trying to glean insight quickly. And we're also trying to often persuade people to see things that maybe they didn't see before. And data visualization, just if you if you do it right, meaning play, you're playing into the stuff that people do well, you're avoiding the stuff that people do poorly. If you do this properly, it's, oh my gosh, the thing that took 20 minutes, it's only taking a half a minute. And in fact, I didn't even see this thing before. And now not only do I see it, but it's it's kind of having this, this tug or pull on what you and your colleagues at Storytelling with Data do is you, you, you'll then find that insight and then craft a narrative around it of some sort, which means the annotation or how am I going to step somebody through the process? And you took them from, I had no idea, now I see it, and now I'm, I'm, I'm passionate about it within a very short amount of time. That's what we should be doing. And you you frame it nicely near the onset of the book, which is that you want people to notice, communicate, and persuade. Right? Is that a fair way to encapsulate the goal or what you're trying to get readers of the book to do after they make their way through it and put it down? What's their next thing that you hope that's, they're inspired to do? The chapter that probably got the most writing was the introduction which was, what am I going to do to set the table for this? What hopefully fun things will be in there that will go, okay, I, I like the tone. This is not too pedantic. It's not dry. It's not academic. And I get all of these three examples. And they walk through the, gee, look, when it was just a table full of numbers, I didn't even notice the thing. Oh, now, now I have a greater understanding or communication of the problem. Oh, now you've gotten me to almost have a, a, a visceral understanding of the issue, which I put under persuasion. And you show, so through that example specifically, but through a number of other examples in the book, a number of simple, but I think often underutilized strategies for making the insight pop or drawing the person's uh, attention to where you want them to look. Can you talk about some of those practical things that we can do to our graphs that are easy and simple that people don't often do? This is where there's a lot of overlap in a lot of the materials that you cover, but into some different stuff too. Though I have a couple in mind that if you don't touch on oh, them, I'll oh, bring them up the, because the, I took notes the, as I read. Well, the, the, <laughs> well, purposeful and meaningful use of color. Jeff Schaefer and I. Jeff is one of the authors on the Big Book of Dashboard. Think this is the number one infraction in data visualization. Whoa! I have all these colors. Let me use them all. And I think you have a. a wonderful turn of phrase that I got from attending your uh, workshop, which is colorful is a wonderful goal for a party and maybe not for your data. And and you show the differences. And, and I try to do that in the book, overuse of color and go, well, color isn't telling me anything. In fact, I have to ignore the color completely to see what might be interesting in this data versus purposeful, meaningful use of color, things like that. The power of the little red dot next to something. You have this massive thing, all these charts, et cetera. And like this thing over here has a little red dot next to it. That's the first thing you look at. It's the smallest thing on the dashboard, but why are you looking at it? I don't know. There's a little red dot there that kind of says, this one's stupid. 
So that was one that struck me because particularly in a dashboard where you've got maybe a lot of different graphs and tables and, and things that you could be looking at. And I think the particular example that I saw it in in the book is like a relatively large graph and there's some tabular information, but there's three that have the tiny red dot next to them. And you're right, you can't not look there, which is a nice subtle way of directing attention without adding much at all, which if you've already got a lot going on, can be a pretty slick way to do that. So there's something that I'll, when I'll tell students, workshop attendees, et cetera, when I'm looking at their dashboard for the first time, and I'll say, well, I'm curious, you're showing me this thing, this is monitoring kind of some top level conditions about the company. Should I be celebrating or hyperventilating right now? Because I can't tell. And if it's if I shouldn't be celebrating or shouldn't be hyperventilating, why are you even showing this to me? If there isn't a good reason for this to be in front of me, maybe figure out what are the things that the person who needs to look at this thing needs to see and try to triage that by drawing some attention to some stuff. Absolutely. So we've had a number of questions come in, uh, several of them, one from Kevin, one from Lisa, that are both around questions of, can they find examples in your new book? And so I know the answer to that is uh, an emphatic yes, but can you maybe step back and outline for folks tuning in, what's the general structure? What content are they going to find in the big picture? It's Unlike the Big Book of Dashboards, I wanted something which was easily digestible. Big Book of Dashboards, it's a reference book. Lots of different scenarios, and you look for something that might fit what you're trying to do. This is to get you up to speed with what I think, hey, I'm, I now have an appreciation. I can speak this language. I'm fluent in graphs. So you certainly have to explain where no, numbers by themselves fall apart, pre-attentive attributes. Why the F do we see so many bar charts? A minimum diet of here are charts that you should know and appreciate. I think, though, to be fair, the, the chapter title was why do we see so many bar charts, right? I read it as like a happy thing. Uh, <laughs> you put a different intonation on it. The presentation that I do around it is called why the F do we see so many uh, bar charts? I don't know. It just goes. Not to be provocative. Oh, you know, right? I, think, I, I think I'll attend that one. That looks interesting. Why the F do we see so many bar charts? Then certain strategies around how do you make this thing important and meaningful to the audience? Well, if you make it about them and insert them into the dashboard some way, it's it well, it becomes riveting. And and also I'm thinking of a couple of things you and I have discussed around collaboration and knowing your audience. I'm a big believer in make the thing as simple as possible, but not simplistic. There's an aphorism that's been attributed to Einstein and lots of other people, as simple as possible, but no simpler. I like not having to explain how to use a new chart type, but the last section of the book is a celebration of real world examples where a data visualization changed the organization. The biggest problem I have with pundits, and I'll, I'll say the guy's name out loud, Tufty, showing Leonard chart is that it is an incredible piece of work and one that should be studied, but what on earth does this have to do with the modern business context? Menard absolutely knew his audience really well. Florence Nightingale in the infamous wedge chart, she knew her audience incredibly well and knew that that weird, called the coxcomb, the rose diagram, the wedge chart, that that would work when presented a certain way. And Menard, expectation was if you read the incredible book by Sandra Rengren, the Menard system, and you'll see all of the different charts that Menard made. Some of them are, are way more applicable to business. But she said, look, this was a well-educated, that the audience was extremely well-educated, sitting in their drawing room with a ruler in hand, looking at these charts, a ruler in hand. Imagine showing the Rose diagram to a busy executive and and she or he saying, oh, my God, this is amazing. Where's my protractor? I really want to study this. That's not going to happen. That understanding the needs of the audience and, and what are their expectations and what are their needs. 
after discussing those two charts and saying, yeah, they're amazing pieces of work, but let's look at it within the context. By the way, Tufti says this is one of the greatest, maybe the greatest statistical chart ever made. Seth Godin, the marketing, brilliant marketing guru and wonderful new book, The Practice, says, well, this may be one of the worst charts ever made. And it explains why. And Stephen Koslin, who's the former chair of psychology at Harvard, says it really violates a whole bunch of things about how humans process information. All right, great. So I've now, I've told people you shouldn't be looking at the Menard chart but I spend a whole chapter looking at the Menard chart, I got to give them a reward, which is, all right, give me some real world examples where some data visualizations change the way people look at stuff. And you sent me an example and you and you said you felt a little Many bit guilty. Many people did, right? You yeah, yes. you, 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 so I've, I've got 11 different examples in there, but you, I think you said you felt bad because it's like, yeah, I sent you kind of this oddball chart. I said, no, I'll, I'll tell you why I liked it. One is, it goes to the whole collaboration that you had with the team that was putting it together and, and well, and maybe just to step back for those who haven't had a chance to to look and see yet. So I did feel sort of bad because Steve reached out for a case study. Said I'm collecting situations where we can point to a data visualization that helped something happen better or faster or smarter. And I felt bad because the one that I provided you was this kind of crazy waffle chart, which is not something that I would typically use because it was a case where it was a pharmaceutical company launching a new drug and they had a couple different audiences. And, and one of those was physicians in this sort of live setting at networking events where you needed something eye-catching. And we did something sort of creative with a build uh, piece by piece that made this ultimately crazy looking graph actually feel intuitive because it the way it was built. And then a completely stripped down bar chart for the sales representatives that needed to be having fast conversations with physicians in their offices. And so I felt, like I said, a little bad with the crazy chart, but it, it worked for the scenario that we were uh, and, using it for. But it, it worked. And part of it was the, let's walk through what happened. So you show the before example, which really confused people. And this was an example to meet with the team that was putting this together and, and say, well, why did this confuse people? Why did people get even come to the wrong conclusion? So you're bringing them up to speed with how people process charts, how they look at stuff. And I've had similar experiences. There's a whole chapter on the importance of collaboration because it was really eye-opening to me. I thought this is a bad idea in making charts and dashboards. So there's an aphorism that a camel is a horse designed by a committee and that you're just going to get lots of people having bad ideas and, and sticking to their guns. And, exist, and, and if done properly, this is great. Uh, the data visualization practitioner can start showing, hey, here's a technique that helps people really focus in on this. And at the same time, the stakeholders are explaining the audience, the needs, what the requirements are. But so in this case, you made the case for, well, here's why this not typically seen chart works. But part of it was it had a so slow reveal. There was a whole seduction. There was someone who was presenting <laughs> it in sequence saying, I'm going to show you a square. This square represents one person. Okay, here are the 72 people that love this. Here are the 18 people who love the other thing. Here are the seven people who said, ah, I don't care one way or the other. And it was because it was done sequentially that way by with good narration, the thing worked. By the way, the second group of people, target audience, the bar chart won, won the day. I've got 30 seconds, show me, oh my God, this is big, this is small. In this case, big, good, small, bad, good, I'm convinced. Do you have a favorite case study or example from My favorite chapter in the book is the one about the importance of knowing your audience. Um, this is the was that the chapter eight with the Napoleon? Yeah, that's chapter March? eight. That, yep. that, and I and the one on where I discuss the Menard chart and the Nightingale Rose chart because I think those two charts. But those are more examples of what not to do, right? Or what of what maybe not to not, emulate no, in that way. It was. It was trying to take care of damage that I think has been done. And I don't want people to look at that. Look, think about this for a second. You go to this workshop or there's some person you really admire who's waxing eloquent about 
the Florence Nightingale's Rose Chart and how it changed the world. It changed the British healthcare system. Who doesn't want to have make an impact with their charts or dashboards? Who doesn't want to have that and go, oh my God, that's absolutely amazing. And this wonderful speaker is, is waxing eloquent about how this changed the world. I guess I should be making charts like that. And it's like, no, you probably shouldn't. Unless you really know your audience and what they're going to respond to. And, well, and, and you characterize that nicely early on when you're setting the context for the book, that the book is about aha, not ooh and ah, right? When it comes right. to the types it's, of visuals it, you're going to be advocating for. Uh, th- yes. It, the book is about aha and not ooh, ah, and not the, ooh, this is going to appear in Wired magazine on page 13. And how do, how does how do we stop the person from turning the page? I guess we need some ooh ah, so we grab their attention. And I'm I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. By the way, the really best in our field can make stuff which is just beautiful, and you want to spend time with it, and is just analytically super sound. Just 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 nails it. And and I'm I will not have those design skills. These really beautiful. It's more. I'm just I'm trying to get somebody to. Yes, I can see it really clearly and really quickly. And because the subject matter itself is important to me, I value this. And I think there is a type of beauty, though, to be found and appreciated in that simplicity, right? It's not the like stunning ooh, but it's beautiful or a type of beauty as well, I would argue. Oh, look, I agree with that in the same way. Maybe two, three weeks ago, my wife and I watched the Ken Burns Novak uh, documentary on Ernest Hemingway. And I remember studying Hemingway freshman year of college, along with James Joyce and T.S. Eliot. And boy, did I have problems with James Joyce and found Hemingway much easier. And I can't help thinking that if Hemingway had done data visualization instead of writing novels and uh, reporting from the front in short stories, my guess is he never would have used a sand key or a chord diagram. Perhaps not. All right. I want to talk a little bit about the writing process. Though, actually, before we do that, I do also want to make sure that we mention for everyone watching and listening, because I know I've seen questions about, is this covered? Is that covered? I just want to make sure that people know they can download a sample of the big picture at bigpick.me. Steve, what will people get when they download the free sample? Oh, they'll probably get lots of annoying reminders to buy the book itself. No, Don't say that. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> what no. fantastic content will they get no. when they oh, go there? Sorry, sorry. I, I, this is the truth cranberry juice and seltzer that <laughs> they forced me to have before you would consent to allowing me to uh, be on the podcast. You'll get a, a sampler from the book, the introduction. You'll see the table of contents, what I'm covering. So, you know, what's in there. I'm always trying to give. As much as possible, the publisher is saying we can't give away the whole book. So hopefully it will be enough to give people a taste and go, okay, this looks like it could be valuable. So uh, bigpick.me and just give your email, send you it, and you there is an opt-out from the newsletter so you won't be bothered. But people want to opt in because you'll get they'll get plenty of other fantastic content from you as they do. So I'm curious though, and always I try to ask this question of others who write books: of is there anything weird about your routine that you find particularly helpful for you? Right, I find people they may have somewhere interesting that they write or a time of day. Do you have any offbeat practices when it comes to getting a book written? besides literally wearing bunny slippers that my kids got me for Father's Day. I have I'm I'm not wearing them now. I should have. I literally have bunny slippers. And how do those help your writing process, Steve? Um, Well, it's, it's, if your feet feel good, you write better. I have no idea. And I don't think I have, what an interesting question. And I don't think I do anything particularly, gee, what's the routine? What's the discipline about it? I will say that the stuff lives with me 24 seven that you're constantly thinking about it. Walking the dog. Oh, is there a better way to explain this? Taking a shower, half asleep at night, and then an idea comes to you, which is, I mentioned a quote in the book about collaboration. And in half in a stupor, four o'clock in the morning, whatever, I, I seem to have this recollection of the composer Stephen Sondheim saying something. I'm going, what? And I wake up in the morning and go, 
that's really good. That's kind of like the the, the wonders and, and, and what came from working with Jeff Shaver and Andy Cotgreave, the big book of dashboards, was the particular thing was collaboration isn't me saying red, you saying blue, and us agreeing on purple. That's compromise. Collaboration is the two of us creating something together that is better than what either of us would have done separately. I spent two weeks trying to find out who said this to discover it looks like I kind of dreamed it. Oh, wow. Yeah, that that un, unless, hey, I, I really did. I posted on Facebook, your brain Twitter, working other overtime. places. And I just, and I said, did Sondheim say this? And contacted my, my theater friends that are way yeah. into this. No one know, can find it. And, and spent a fair amount of time looking at this thing and going, okay, maybe, maybe. Maybe, maybe Wexler said this. Yeah. <laughs> and, I love it. And I, I, that was the experience of working on the big book of dashboards. So here I am being this flaming hypocrite saying. How well, no, I am interested in that, though, because I've had conversations with you. I've had conversations with Andy and Jeff. And one of the things that the three of you each talk about pretty passionately was how much better of a book that was because of the what healthy debates <laughs> that happened along the way. So I'm curious how, well, but how was it writing solo after that? And yeah, was it just your own psyche that you were then <laughs> debating with or how did you get that input? A couple of things. So you know, why did I go all Beyonce on Destiny's Child here with, uh, <laughs> with this type of stuff? That collaboration worked incredibly well for the big book of dashboards. And I didn't feel because a lot of this is, look, here's kind of my perspective on things, my observations, here's what works, here's what doesn't, here are strategies that you can try. And I just didn't think that for this book and this thing with its kind of has a personal take on it, that it would have, that it would have resulted in the right book. And it would have taken way longer, by the way, because with the big book of dashboards, discussions would be, is this the best way to show this? Is this, should this be this color or that color should be? And someone takes a lead. And if you read that book, you'll have some dissenting opinions in there going, well, Steve felt this way, but I thought it would have been better had you done uh, such and such. Now that said, there were probably 30 or 40 people who reviewed at least a chapter or two on this. You, you know, I asked you to read the whole thing, be one of four, what I called deep readers on this thing. And I was looking for booze. I was looking for problems. The chapter on Menard and Nightingale, I sent it to RJ Andrews and Jason Forrest because I said, they're probably going to have the biggest problem with this and the biggest pushback. And I got some particularly good feedback from RJ, but from both of them on it. And I said, well, here are two people that really understand this. Let me make sure I'm not missing something that could be pretty important in this discussion. So, so you looked for people to poke holes, right? And this yeah. is advice that we often give for anyone doing anything analytical is do that, right? Seek out the people who are likely to have different opinions or viewpoints and poke holes because the work becomes stronger as a result of that. One of my big fears right now is, so I'm a professional chart looker at her. This is this is part of what what we do. And I've gotten really good at looking at and interpreting charts. One of the things that concerns me is think of how you display time on a graph. If it's a timeline, the way we've grown up with this, and this goes back to the mid 18th century, is dinosaurs are to the left, Star Trek is to the right, and we're somewhere in between the dinosaurs and Star Trek, probably way closer to Star Trek. Time goes from left to right. Well, I can now turn the thing 90 degrees, and I am now comfortable looking at time displayed vertically. It's taken about 14 years to be comfortable with it, but Andy Cochrane points out, people going like this on their phones, you're starting to see stuff displayed vertically. And it yeah. bothers me that I'm it comfortable It bothers you with that this. it feels okay, yeah. Because I'm gonna think, well, if I have no trouble reading this, my audience won't have any trouble reading it. And it means, oh my gosh, I'm not seeing it through their eyes. And I've heard you speak about this on one of the clubhouse events, and you have to run this stuff by your audience and make sure that yes. they get it. 
Well, not even necessarily your audience, right? We'll often advocate, you know, run it by somebody who's just very different from you or who has no context and then see it through their eyes and then figure out based on where you're at and where they're at. And to your point, are you closer to the dinosaurs or Star Trek? Is your audience closer to you or closer to that person without the context? And then you can figure out what you need to do to make sure that's still going to work. I'm going to ask the people who are in right now, come on, tell me you don't have a bunch of family members who are completely clueless to what you do, that you can show a chart to press chart and say, hey, do you understand this? By the way, so the second workshop. Daniel says all in caps, by the way, accurate. (laughs) Julie Um, uses her husband for this. (laughs) Yeah, this is a great use for spouses, by the way, if they're not in the same field. The cool thing came about out of practicality in the dashboard workshops that I do. So I first started doing these with Jeff and we didn't have enough stuff for people to actually do. It was too much of us presenting stuff and being pontificating. So we ended up adding this capstone exercise where you have four or five people working together with with here are these things, create a dashboard using hand-drawn type of thing. And we would then have each team show their results. And I made the mistake of having somebody get up and say, okay, I'm gonna share my dashboard with you. And it was, oh my gosh, this is death. It's taking them forever to explain this thing. And I said, let me change this. But here's the, the bizarre thing that happened with it. It was, this is how you should present your dashboards early on to stakeholders. Don't tell them what it does. Don't tell them how it works. Show it to them and say, what do you see? And have them tell you what they're getting from it. And They'll say, well, I think this part in the upper left is about such and such. And you're trying to show that that sales over here is way bigger than sales over there. And this other part is that, gee, this part over there, I got to tell you, I don't know what that does. You'll, you'll immediately see what are the things that are resonating, what doesn't. So instead of you saying, let me show this to you, say, tell me what you think of this, what makes sense, what doesn't. Do this and tell, walk me through what you do, what you see. So that absolutely, but let's take a step back even before that, right? Because that's once there is a dashboard or a product or something to show back on this idea of collaboration, what does good collaboration look like between an analyst and a stakeholder? How do you get that to happen and make it a productive endeavor? Hopefully you get it to happen. That, that, that's where I recognize that it was pretty easy for me in the, the book to describe these case studies where everyone that had skin in the game, to use that cliche, at some point was in the room at the same time. And it's like, well, that's not going to happen. I'm doing this as an executive dashboard. You know, and then, uh, what busy executive has time to do that? By the way, that's the problem. We need to find executives that aren't that busy. I would, I don't know. I would point to a different problem there, which we could probably get into maybe more of a longer conversation and healthy debate about, which is that the busy exec has no reason to be looking at the dashboard in the first place. We can debate that at some point. This was really eye-opening to me, and it was right even before the big book of dashboards. But I recount this thing. A a guy who's now become a a good friend, Troy McGinnis, is head of Focused Objective, and he helps developers and programming teams kind of manage difficult projects. But this was about building something into the software product that, that used data visualization and said, okay, we need to have the developers there. The people are going to be selling it. The people are going to be using it. They kind of come to an understanding about how these things are going to work. And I just thought it was going to be people who didn't know what they were doing in data visualization, talking about stuff. But instead, it was kind of the recipe for it was, well, there's someone who knew the data really well, someone who knew what needed to be conveyed. There was, I'm coming in as the data visualization person. And then you had the stakeholders. And then we would present a prototype and explain, well, here's why, look what you were doing before. What were the questions you were trying to answer? And was it easy to answer? Well, let me show you a couple of alternatives. And let's ask those same questions. And is it easier to answer with this? And you explain why, hopefully you're right, but amazing things happen. One is they get excited about the stuff because suddenly stuff that was buried 
they're now seeing it and they're going, oh, that's so cool. I didn't see that before with the way we were doing it. Now I'm seeing it. You're also discovering where there are things that are clear to you and they go, oh, I got totally confused by that. And you look at it and go, hmm, I could see where you're confused. Hold on. Let me try something a little bit different here. Does that make sense now? Yeah. So there's an example where I have this, this slope chart in the, in, the, in the workshop attendee gave me pushback on something. And ever since that's happened, I told every workshop attendee, you are encouraged to disagree with me. Wait for the right time to do it. But they said, this thing that was so clear to you, and it was the, the, a, a slope area chart, normally a slope chart uh, kind of distributed thing for four different categories. It started here, it ended here. And for this category, it started way down here, but it ended way up there. And But it was filled in because I thought it looked cooler. This person thought I was asking them to compare the area of these weird shapes as opposed to where we started, where we ended. And that's the type of thing that you get when the stakeholder is in the room and the audience member is in the room. The other thing that happens is so you're hipping them to data visualization. They're hipping you to what they need or what their client needs and as well as where things are falling short. And then when the thing comes out, there's a pride of authorship. They know that their stuff... They're bought in in a different way, right? As yes, a result of because that. Because that's and then part it, of their idea has been manifested in this thing. And, well, and they get behind it. Go ahead. I'm yeah. sorry. Well, I was just going to say it, it, how critical, right? And you've talked about this, but the, in the moment, the conversation, when someone can bring something up and then you respond and then you, you have this conversation, which allows you both to see each other's logic and viewpoint and, and figure out that is the collaboration that you talked about earlier. Larry made a, a great point in the chat here. He says, when reviewing a confusing or inadequate slide, uh, for example, wall of numbers, I often ask the owner, what is the key takeaway for the audience? Invariably, they give a great verbal answer, right? It just rarely translates to the slide. But so when we can have that conversation, things just happen <laughs> magically in a more effective way. Lisa has a question. What's the best prototyping tool to use in a virtual environment where everyone can participate and collaborate in the creation process? Have you done much of this virtually? The, the, wow, Lisa, maybe you could tell me because it's been, it's a, it's been difficult to have that. There's usually I'll try to give a brief answer of what has been sufficing during the pandemic. So the only part of the workshop, which is a little more of the one that I give, is I've got people in breakout rooms, four or five people trying to work remotely where they would have been side by side by side by side by side, drawing stuff on post-it notes and putting stuff. Now, how do you do that in a virtual environment? And Oddly enough, it's worked surprisingly well. There's usually one compositor, someone who's going to put everybody's stuff together. So either you have still one- Still them do it low tech? I'm still having it, to, yes. Absolutely yeah. doing it low tech because it's every time they try to do it high tech using a tool, they- and The tool can get in is, the way you have to right? be You have to be adept enough at the tool to not have the tool take you down a path of creating something that's not good. And let's say you don't have 45 minutes to do this exercise. So there's usually the compositor. Maybe there's someone who draws particularly well, but they'll they'll talk about the different pieces and then each person will say, well, here's what I have in mind. And they can take a picture. They'll usually take a picture of what they've drawn and say, hey, here's what I'm thinking about. Or, or they'll, hold it, they'll hold it up yeah. to the camera. When do you know one thing that's actually very interesting from that is that it, I would imagine people are forced to verbalize their ideas more because it is harder to share the drawings, right? And just that verbalization of ideas helps with a productive conversation. And, and the, the, so Lisa, I'm going to defer to you. I'm going to defer to others here and would like to hear what's worked. But I've now done this, I don't know how many times. And I will admonish, admonish is too strong a word, recommend to the attendees, I'll say, look, the people who have succeeded and hit this thing out of the park, they're going low tech. And, and then I draw something on a piece of paper and hold it up and go, and they go like this. The folks that are, hey, I'm going to use my tool for this. I'm not saying don't, but 
that that it, it may be a little harder to succeed with these constraints. And it can be a barrier, right? A barrier to efficiency, a barrier to just the sharing. And it's like a, a lens that you have to get through to be able to get at the idea. So if you can take that piece out of it, then there's probably some utility there. So I'd love to shift gears a little bit and, and pose a question to you that we get frequently at our workshops that I have a feeling you may have a slightly different response to than I do, but I'm, I'm curious to see where you go with it, which is how do you respond when someone asks you how to use a dashboard to tell a story? Probably tell them I'm not convinced the dashboard is the best mechanism to actually tell the story. So it may be the best mechanism to help you find where the best parts of your story are going to be, but I don't know if it's a great mechanism for a narrative that has a beginning, a middle, some tension, and release. It's hard not to fawn over you, Cole, because you know, no, I just enjoyed the work and, <laughs> and your workshop. But before the first book came out, you allowed me to come to one of your workshops and I'm I'm looking. Why is that the, the, the big book? book of, this is in New York. This is back yeah, in yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. This is between between Paris in 1957 yeah. and the Tableau Conference in 2019. <laughs> and and I'm I'm going. Oh my gosh! Why does anybody need this book? The healthy doubts that anyone who produces anything has. The imposter syndrome. The thing sucks, et, et cetera. And at one point, you were talking about the mistake people make in making presentations, which is you have to shuck a lot of oysters to find the pearl. Don't show everybody all the oysters you shucked. The, oh, we then went through, there were 15 million rows of data, and we did this, and we did, oh my gosh, you know, just get to what is the thing. And I thought about what a dashboard does, and it's like this automated oyster shucker. It can allow you to find the pearls faster. What you do with that really depends. Now, you can have these great monitoring dashboards, these things which will, hey, the little red dots, the things that you need to see. But then it's a question of, well, how am I going to curate this into a presentation? Well, five minute, I need to show you something that's important. The, there's a whole chapter in the book about the importance of dashboards. Big surprise. Guy writes a book about dashboards. He's saying why you need dashboards. But it, it, it even says, I think it's okay if your dashboard is boring. The presentation you make around it, that has to be riveting. So that could be a PowerPoint presentation. Something like Tableau has story points built in, which is, gee, I created this Do you this see dashboard. that used very often? Because I remember when it came out years ago, and I thought there would be more of it, but I haven't seen. The, it's not used as often. It, it has to do with some of the controls or the ability to somebody then go off on their own. Now, the reason I like a hybrid of these things which is, all right, I'm giving a presentation and it's very PowerPointy. You know, great, great images from the dashboard, but I've got my, hey, here's, I found some really important things that you, that are going to be meaningful to you. Let me walk you through it. And they go, wow, that's great. I have some questions for you, though. You were showcasing what was happening in the West. What about the East? And do you want to have a separate slide for every single question or permutation to go, oh, let's go back to the source dashboard and then we can just focus on the East. So having that to answer questions that the presentation may not have anticipated can be really great. When so, is a way of combining that explanatory with the ability still to dig and be impromptu in addressing your audience's needs, right? Coming back to the audience. Absolutely. And I still, I still see this curation as being really pretty important. You can try to make your dashboard super smart. Ooh, the colors change to really drink. The, ooh, there's automatic annotation layer happening when certain things happen. But there's something about someone who is curating the thing. So the need to create a narrative, there's a fair amount of effort in that. And whether that is a PowerPoint presentation, whether it's scrolly telling, which, which I think people were really kind of expecting that more than story points, more than this. You mm. click here, click here, click mm -hmm. here, click here. You ask a good question. Maybe some of your the people are piping in on this thing. Why hasn't story points taken off more? Yeah. Know, as, as, as I think you're right that it has to do with yeah, some of the settings and the way those don't carry through. 
where you end up changing something in one one and you go, oh, and you go to the next thing. It goes, I don't care if you change that thing. This story is going the way I want this story to go, Buster. And that's kind of the degree with it. So I'm going to end because we're coming close on time, but with uh, probably a big question and maybe we don't answer it fully here, but you can point people back to the book and where they'll find more. But why is it that data visualization and dashboarding endeavors and initiatives fail? And what can the folks who are listening and watching do to keep that from happening? Well, the, I think both you and I saw a presentation by Nick DeBarat at, at the Tableau conference, and it was Why Dashboards Fail. And I think that was the title of it. And I disagree. I agree and disagree with him. He, he was saying you need to have this whole understanding and taxonomy of the different types of presentations. And is it an exploratory dashboard or an explanatory dashboard and things like that? And I'm I'm not convinced that's needed. But if you look at the the larger thing that he's saying, that I think he's saying, I'm not going to put word, it's you don't understand the needs of your audience or you haven't managed your audience expectation. And that's where I think they really fail. And it's it's gee, I don't know what the audience needs. I don't know what they understand. I've just spent, my team and I have just spent six months working our butts off on this thing to create something that nobody's going to use. And had you brought them in early and done the collaboration and they become stakeholders, they become partial authors in this thing, you're much less likely to have failure along the way. And it's that total separate, and I've seen this, there's a major organization I consult to and the layers between the people making the dashboards and charts and the people who are using them, it's, it's at least two intermediaries. And a lot of those things are going to fail. And so one way we can keep them from failing is to apply some of the lessons that Steve raises and shows through example in his new book, right? We've talked about a number of tips and lessons from there today, right? Collaborating, addressing, understanding the needs of your audience, evangelizing for good uses of data and data visualization. Steve, where can people follow your Work. Data Revelations. So datarevelations.com. That is also my Twitter handle at Data Revelations. And if that's just too many letters to type in, you can go to Big Pick for the big picture, bigpick.me. That'll take you to the book page where you can download a sampler. And we will include all of that with the show notes as well. So people will be able to find those easily. Steve, any final thoughts that you would like to share today? Um, Just um, one, thanks for the time. Thanks for everybody hanging today. And stay safe, stay sane. And I hope we get to meet in person in the not too distant future. Wouldn't that be wonderful? It would be. Steve, it has been lovely to chat with you. As always, thank you for taking the time. Oh, my pleasure. Looking forward to, uh, and looking forward to mention, finding out if you've got another book in the works down the road. Maybe so, maybe so. Congratulations on your new book. To everyone watching and listening, I encourage you to pick up a copy of The Big Picture today. And thanks very much for tuning in. Thank you so much.